We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. One of the most intense short stories I've ever read. If you've read this, the tree scene, you know what I mean. <laughs> Coming up today, Toddler Hunting by Taiko Kono, which is coming to us out of the Oxford Book of Japanese Short Stories, published in 1961 and translated by Lucy North. If you are new to the Codex Cantina, welcome. My name is Una, and we like to take some of the most important stories that have influenced even today's writers, breaking them down in a conversational way. Today, we don't have crypto with us, so it's just going to be a conversation between you and me. And boy, guys, toddler hunting had no idea what I was getting into this. I have only ever read In a Box by Taiko Kono before. And that one is just like this whimsical, funny, almost fable-like story that can kind of, you know, put a smile on anyone's face. I don't think anyone smiles during this story. This is intense. It's visceral. It's touching on elements that a lot of people would consider hot buttons in terms of sadomasochism, in terms of torture on children, in terms of borderline potentially inappropriate thoughts. This is definitely one of those stories where it excels at what literature does best. And that's taking these internal worlds that we have and externalizing them. And arguably, that's even one of the themes that this may be, that maybe this story is experiencing and exploring, I should say, for Japanese women, and perhaps, you know, breaking the mold of what we think, it, uh, you know, a normal housewife may think. This is a story that's going in the opposite direction with an unmarried narrator named Hayashi Akiko. Moving into the plot summary. Akiko can't stand little girls between the ages of 3 and 10. Yep, we're going there. But she loves young boys of that age. She's so enamored that she finds herself purchasing little boy clothes and later finding them a match. Uh, who, who could wear these clothes that I just purchased? It's a rather strange dynamic, and I think it's going to evoke some emotions from some people where, you know, this type of behavior, you're like, oh, where are we going with this one, Taiko Kono? And, you know, this woman, Akiko, she'd work extra hours to afford this lifestyle and would even reach out to old friends that she hasn't spoken to in years just to give these presents to these young boys. And on one such occasion, she heads to a friend's son's performance where she gives him a rather expensive shirt that she recently purchased, and she relishes watching the boy put on and take off the gifted shirt. Hmm. <laughs> she hasn't spoken with his friends since she had been in chorus years ago, and she's been working as a translator from, from Italian for, for years since then. And that's actually how she met her, her uh, husband, or no, not husband, sorry, her boyfriend, Sakiko. 
he's an engineer at this place. And since she did the translations and had to work with translations with Italian companies, Sakiko worked in the uh, engineering department and she'd have to work with him to get the more technical names, if you will. What brings them together? He's a junior of her of a couple years. Whoops. And interestingly enough, it's their sexual appetites, if you will. And she makes several references to, oh, we're together because we have such compatible sexual preferences. What could those be? <laughs> well, the story gets very Fifty Shades of Grey. And I think if the if if the the way she's enamored with the young boys putting on clothes on and off, which never goes beyond that, and it transitions into her adult relationships with a man, which are very Fifty Shades of Grey. It's sadomasochism. They're, you know, scratching each other's skin, tying each other up, possibly killing each other. He wants her to sign a will at some point because if she dies, he doesn't want it to be her fault. We need a safe word. <laughs> so it gets pretty intense pretty fast. And then she goes into these fantasies as if this story weren't enough. Now we see the tree scene where young boys tied up, tortured, probably her, you know, a vision of what her son could be. And she sees a, a what could be a vision. They're faceless people in these dreams of an older man. And she's kind of egging them on, thinking that the boy deserves it. And uh, I think a lot of people may have a hard time figuring out what's the value of this. It's it's very uncomfortable to read. Um, for, for most people, I, I maybe some people this you know that are really into horror maybe this isn't as shocking but i think for a lot of people that don't read horror this is pretty horrific so later on she recalls when she quit her course because she had pulmonary tb and that's when doctors told her that she could never try to have children for fear that she would lose her life and she thinks about how men have it so much easier when it comes to parenting and that sort of things, if you will. And I think this is kind of the, I think it gives a lot of value and understanding to her revulsion and an obsession with the young age and uh, the way that the the moment of, of reproduction, you know, mating with, with this man becomes moments of, of um, I don't want to say torture because it is pleasurable for her, right? Like you, I may call it torture or someone who's not into into that may call it that. But uh, it's a world I don't understand. I don't want to pass judgment on it. But it's not, you know, the, the, the typical way that we think we would approach, you know, sexual relationships, if you will. So why? Why? What's going on with this story? One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting, did you notice the, the opera that was in this one? Madame, Madama, Butterfly, depending on the language in which you read, uh, read this. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very interesting story. It's about a naval officer who marries a geisha named Butterfly. And the thing is, is he marries her knowing that the Japanese divorce laws are very lax. So he knows he's going to get away with, with this being a temporary relationship. And he does. He goes and marries this girl named Kate. So it's a story of unrequited love. And, and he comes back years later and, and story, et cetera, et cetera. But I couldn't help but wonder if we're supposed to meant to kind of parallel this with Sakiko and Akiko's... Uh, have I been saying Sakiko? Sak Sakiko? His name is Sasaki. I've been saying his name wrong the whole time. It's Sasaki. Sorry. Sasaki and Akiko. So their relationship is one almost of unrequited love as well, right? Because she's worried that he's going to move on. Neither one is pushing for the longer term relationship. And the moment of what many people would consider ultimate consummation, you know, in terms of their love is, I don't want to say polluted, but it's different by introducing pain, introducing pain into that situation, right? And we got that backstory 
about how the pulmonary TB, you know, even as a young child, she saw the cocoon being split open with the guts and the umbilical cord of, of the silkworm, you know, relating to itself. And this was all very, it evokes these emotions in you about what do children mean to us and what does reproduction mean? I think Akiko begins to have these very strong reactions to the fact that she can't produce children without risk to her own life, right? Men have it so much easier, right? It's a lot less risk for them. And as a result, she almost begins to despise the young girls because she knows that they may grow up to face similar problems is the way that I took, you know, her, her aversion to the young girls. And she, she has this affection for the boys because they won't have that problem is one of the ways that I could take that. And her sadomasochism might be one of the ways that it kind of, she can relate to that pain. She can relate to that struggle. And I think, I think it's an interesting story, if not very visceral, because we get to that, that tree scene and, oh, is that rough? But at the same time, it is fantasy, right? And I think that's one of the themes about this story too, is how do we relate to the outside world? There's all of these moments, for example, when they're having their 50 shades moment, the fire alarm goes off and they have to go out into public, a very private moment suddenly becoming public. And what do the neighbors do? They're like, uh, can you keep it down? Right? Like we see this blurring of personal boundaries when it comes to public and private life. Very similar to, uh, the lady with the, the, the toy dog by Anton Chekhov. Right. And later on at the bathhouse, right? If you have never been to a Japanese bathhouse, well, one, you have to go. They're amazing, but you have to get fully nude. Right. Uh, it's it's very poor form not to, and in some places kind of require that you have to do that. But those are they're private, like like they're they're gender separated, at least the ones that I saw when I was there. But it's it's also a public bathhouse, right? And you see when she walks in, she's got these cuts from from the torture and sadomasochism that she experiences with her boyfriend, Sasaki. Remembered it this time. <laughs> And she's kind of covering it up, right? She doesn't want her private life coming out, much like how she experienced that during the fire drill scene. But at the same time, that's when she's hoping to see those little boys, right? It's this blurring of the private interior world coming out into public that Colmill seems to be exploring through this whole piece. And it's just so fascinating the way that she'll buy clothes for these boys. It's it's not a normal thing that what most people do is go buy clothes and then find someone to give it to, let alone a boy that they don't really know, right? And that seems to be her obsession. That's what gives her pleasure. And it's so true, though, in, in, in the context of we will put ourselves around the things that we're obsessed with. If you've ever been around someone that's going through withdrawal, whether it be drugs or alcohol, I'll use alcohol for this example, they'll do the strangest things where like when they're moving, all of a sudden they pick an apartment conveniently right across from a liquor store, right? Like we as human beings find the weirdest ways to put ourselves around our, our, our vices, our fantasies. And it's this blurring of lines that we seem to want to do and, and cross that line into our fantasy that this story is kind of exploring. And I think we see a lot of repression from her all the way back from that science experiment, all the way through 
the, the things that she does to her body along with her boyfriend, that she is experiencing this blurred lines and exploration of fantasy and external world. So interesting story. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't know. But if I were to show this story to, to 10 readers, I, I can't imagine any single one of them finding it boring. I don't know what that means for you. But it means that the story definitely reaches an emotional climax. It hits those buttons, whether you like it or not. And it makes you confront, I think, what are the things that are in my closet that I keep hidden and why? And why do I put myself in these situations when I'm, I'll say addicted, but when I really want something, why do I find myself constantly surrounding myself with it? Is it because I want to break down those boundaries? Is it because I want certain things to happen? And when I don't want it to happen, is that when I pervert them or I, I try to cause harm to them in the way, same way that Akiko does in the story? I don't know. I don't know. Literature is a very personal moment if, if you had a very particular reaction to the story. Besides, you know, maybe you, you read it and you didn't like the things in it and you hated it. That's one thing. But it, did it cause you to think maybe about what is it that's driving this woman? What is it that's driving me? And what do I put myself around versus what do I prefer to avoid? Maybe even sullying what I think is myself and my public persona in the same way that she hides her scars. Interesting story to reflect on that. So while this is my second Kono story, it is night and day different from that in the box, which is hysterical. And this one's super serious and dark and grotesque. So is this an, is this an author that I need to read more of? I don't know how to describe her based on these two stories. I feel like I'm dealing with two different authors. So, so let me know down below if you've read other Kono stories before. What are your thoughts and what, what other ones would you recommend that we check out potentially? Because this has just been a very polarizing author I felt like reading through her stories. So guys, if you enjoyed this story or if you want to hear more about us as we explore Japanese literature, as we're doing a ton from the Oxford Book of Japanese Short Stories as well as the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories, hit that subscribe button to join us as we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. <laughs>